Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And of course here on RTE Radio 1 on Sunday nights. Tonight, we continue our tribute to master playwright, novelist and academic Thomas Kilroy, who died last month. Thomas's many achievements include the plays Double Cross, Talbot's Box, Tea and Sex and Shakespeare, The O'Neill and The Secret Fall of Constance Wilde. His writings include the novel The Big Chapel, which won the Guardian Fiction Prize in 1971, and his radio play for Drama on One, in the Garden of the Asylum. A recent Irish Times article quoted Professor Nicholas Green, who praised Thomas for modernising Irish theatre, beginning with his 1968 breakthrough play The Death and Resurrection of Mr Roach. He also acknowledged his immense contribution as a critic and a dramatiser and an observer of modern Irish life and what has made us what we are. Thomas also encouraged younger playwrights as a board member with both Field Day and the Focus Theatre. Tonight we'll hear A Family of Memories in which Thomas reads from his memoir in a radio version directed by Patrick Mason. The radio piece revisits key episodes in the Kilroy family's history focusing on the War of Independence, the Civil War and the foundation of the Irish Free State. Featuring Kathy Belton and Joe Taylor and with an original score by Dennis Clohessy, this is A Family of Memories by Thomas Kilroy. Ireland's cause is not Ireland's cause only, it is the cause of the world. Dramatic protest. Political prisoners set fire to Galway Jail. Thomas Kilroy, Camp Commandant. We got beaten to save the life of General Crowley. We would have suffered death had it been necessary to release Mr De Valera stood up for the Republic. He stood up for Ireland when the rest of them sold out. Didn't he stay at home and send the others to London to sign the treaty? I know one thing for sure, sir. The English shortchanged us. They sold us a pub. My generation is the last one to have experienced the War of Independence and Civil War, not through history, but through memory. I'm not saying that we lived through the period and that we can now remember it. What I am saying is that many of us had the experience of the period through the memories of our parents and the stories they told us as children. In this way, the detail of the period is peculiarly refracted. It is not just filtered through the possibly unreliable memories of the parents, It is doubly filtered through our own memories of what we received from our parents when we were children. Memory is notoriously subject to fictionalizing, to selectivity and embroidery, depending upon the character of the one remembering. Each act of remembering is subject to this distortion. In the case of the imaginative recaller, the artist, memory may be heavily aestheticized, the most profound distortion of all. I remind myself of all these qualifications as I recall my parents. My mother was born in 1897 and my father in 1893. They were teenagers together 
in the small village of Caltra in East Galway in the west of Ireland. She was 19 and he 23 years old in 1916 when Dublin erupted with the Easter Rebellion and Ireland moved towards its war of independence. As young nationalists, they joined Sinn Féin and the Gaelic League in their village under the guidance of the local priest. In 1917, a unit of the IRA was formed in the area and my father became its officer. At the same time, my mother joined Kamanamon, the women's ancillary group of the IRA, members of which gave backup help to the armed volunteers. Both were intimately touched by the violent campaign that was to follow. He was the leader in an attack upon a convoy of the Royal Irish Constabulary in July 1920, in which two police officers were seriously injured. There followed attacks and reprisals in the area by the Black and Tans. In one such assault on the village of Caltra, my mother's family pub, the family was called Divine, was invaded by the Black and Tans. And this is the first war story that I remember from my mother. She told how her own mother, my grandmother, stood her ground in Black Widow's weeds and silver-gray hair behind the counter, while the drunken military shot the bottles on the shelves over her head. The stern old lady that I remember laying down the law to us children on our summer holidays in Caltra would have been well capable of such defiance. When martial law was declared in the Caltra area in November 1920, my father was rounded up in the general sweep. In early May 1921, he and five others were tried before a military court for the shooting of the two policemen. The prosecution depended upon the evidence of an IRA man who had changed sides and gave evidence against his old comrades. My father always expressed compassion for this man, who, he said, had been tortured to the point of mental breakdown. He also said later that the British military officers of the court were both fair and efficient. He and his comrades were convicted and sentenced to penal servitude for life. The odd thing is that later the same month, he and my mother were married in the old pro-cathedral of Galway City. How was he allowed out of prison to be married? I have no idea. Certainly after the wedding, he was back in Galway jail again and wasn't released until January 1922 as part of the general amnesty following the signing of the treaty. While he was still in prison, another incident took place which nearly caused his death. Although the treaty between the British and the Irish had already been signed, he was still a prisoner when, in November 1921, six months after his wedding, 
He was one of the ringleaders in a violent attempt to burn down Galway Jail from the inside. It was odd in that surely the prisoners must have known they would soon be released under the treaty. Perhaps it was a last display of defiance against the British authorities. According to my father, the fire was a protest against the maltreatment of a sick fellow prisoner named Crowley, who was not being given the medical attention he needed. Crowley was a barrister, and one of the rebel judges in the court system set up by Sinn Féin, and therefore a prime target of the British. Six revolvers were smuggled into the prison, and warders were overpowered as they attempted to open the cells for the daily routine. Five wings of the prison were set ablaze. The military forces, regular units, and both black and tans and auxiliaries moved in to surround the prison. Inside, the excited prisoners sang rebel songs and a battle for the control of the prison followed. Memory sometimes inspires research. Perhaps to authenticate the memories. Perhaps just simply a matter of wanting to know more. My father's stories sent me to the local Galway newspapers of the day. Reading through them conveys the surreal atmosphere of the revolutionary period and the lack of clear lines in the narrative the kind of confusion which attends revolution everywhere. The Connacht Tribune carried exciting headlines of the incident. My father was named in the newspaper as among the injured, and in the press account he was given bravura treatment like a character out of a play by John Millington Singh. Dramatic protest. I can easily imagine my mother reading this description of him in the newspaper. Political prisoners set fire to Galway jail. She could be scathing about Ten him when they were face to face. And some police injured. But in his absence, Thomas she Kilroy. always defended him before us children and would have no criticism of his behaviour. Kilroy, who is suffering a life sentence on a charge arising out of the Caltra ambush, got two severe baton blows in the head and is alleged to have been kicked in the stomach. He was almost unconscious when taken to the hospital, but after his wounds had been attended to, he rose up in the bed and declared, We got beaten to save the life of Jermoth Crowley, but we would have suffered death had it been necessary to release him. In the newspaper, Reports of relentless ambushes and killings of police and military throughout the countryside are placed side by side with the results of games from the local golf links. Masked men drag out victims from their homes on a nightly basis and shoot them, while the well-named local theatres, the Empire and the Victoria, continue to do brisk business in comedies and farces. A bi-Irish campaign sits uneasily on the page. New reports of the more lethal activity of Irish nationalism. 
most unnervingly of all, perhaps, De Valera, the Republican leader, is received at the local university in Galway as the new Chancellor of the National University of Ireland on the very same week as that of the jail fire. At the same time as his formal reception by the university, his own rebel soldiers struggled for their lives in the prison, merely yards away, across the road from the campus, as if two Irelands existed side by side. Nearly 30 years later, in 1948, I was to have my first sight of de Valera, then Taoiseach. At the same time, I experienced the republicanism of my mother. I was 13 years old. It was during the general election campaign of that year, a winter campaign with some of the most severe weather of my childhood, when de Valera came and spoke in Callan, where my father was by then, sergeant of the guards. The story that we children were told was that Dev was met outside the town and put on a white horse with a green cloak around his shoulders. In this imitation of the triumphal parade of an ancient Gaelic chieftain, he made his entrance to the meeting place at the Callan Tholso, or town hall. Could this be true? The only time that the people of the country have an opportunity of deciding upon policy is an election A stone staircase ran up the outside wall to a doorway high above, as it still does today. And it was from this high doorway that de Valera addressed the excited crowd below him. We've been chasing our opponents to try to get them to stand their ground somewhere. I was in that crowd. I believe my father ensured that we children were brought out that night so that we might experience that speech, you know his way of educating are. his children in and politics. And every one of you, when you put down your one, two, three and four, or whatever may be the number of the candidates in each constituency, remember that you're voting for the things that Pierce and Connolly died for. What was the appeal of de Valera to the Irish? A thin, gawky, gaunt figure. He had little obvious appeal in his person. More than that, the voice was a deadly monotone, with a slightly high pitch, and there was little ornamentation or even elevation in his use of language. Yet I can still remember the tension in that crowd on that miserably cold night. Not for the last time in my life, I was made to wonder at the power of performance and the way in which it can sometimes create effects that seem to be beyond nature itself. A performance begins, and what was a nondescript figure suddenly becomes transformed in electrifying fashion before our eyes. This was de Valera in action. Back home, after the meeting, there was a family row. The most memorable description 
of how Irish politics disrupts the domestic scene is Joyce's Christmas dinner in a portrait of the artist as a young man where you had the famous row over Parnell. He went against his own. We had a version of the same row, but on a much smaller scale, in our kitchen over De Valera. He went against his own comrades behind their back. My father in one corner. Who? My mother. Who are you talking White-faced about? and barely controlled in another. Go on out of that with you. Such talk in front of the children there. Didn't he stay at home and send the others to London to sign the treaty? And then not back them up when they come home again. Mr. De Valera stood up for the Republic. Ah, stood up for himself, more likely. The lanky galoot. He stood up for Ireland when the rest of them sold out. Sold out, is it? Sold out? God almighty, you don't know what you're talking about, woman. I know one thing for sure and certain. The English shortchanged us. They sold us a pup. Those men gave us the free state. Free state? How are you? Our own government. Our own law. Our own... Pie in the sky. That's all it was. Pie in the sky. I don't remember how the argument ended, but de Valera lost that election. After his release from Galway Jail in 1922, my father was approached personally by the two men, Michael Staines and Joe Ring, whom Collins had picked to help establish and lead the new unarmed Irish police force. They asked him to join and to use his influence to bring old comrades from the IRA with him into the new force. He said that at first he laughed at the idea as someone who had recently been sentenced to life imprisonment for shooting at two policemen. But he was persuaded and left for Dublin with 20 others from the Galway area. When he was moved with the first couple of thousand Garda recruits to the old British military barracks in Kildare, my mother joined him. I don't know what she felt about the new political situation, but I do remember her telling us as children about the beautiful married quarters in the camp that were lavishly laid out for their former occupants, British army officers. Coming from the village of Caltra, where at times life could be difficult, this would have been her first introduction to something like luxury. The big issue in the new police force, apart from the fact that the country was moving rapidly towards civil war, was the question of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Members of the old RIC were being drafted into the new police force. Some of these RIC men had shown sympathy for the Irish nationalist cause during the War of Independence and, as such, were acceptable to the new recruits from the IRA. But others were offered by the British to help train the new force and set up its structures, it is clear that Collins welcomed this offer of professional help as he accepted artillery from the British later on to fight the Civil War. But this imposition of old enemies, often at senior rank, was deeply resented by former IRA men who a short time before were engaged in an armed struggle against them and, in my father's case, 
actually shooting them. One of the first things he did in the new Garda camp in Kildare, hardly in keeping with his new oath of allegiance to the new state, was to join a secret committee of former IRA men to monitor proceedings in the interests of the IRA. This secret committee became the centre of the so-called Kildare Mutiny that followed. He was in the group of former IRA men who took guns from the camp armory one night. Armed, they approached the RIC officers who were involved and threatened to shoot them if they didn't leave the camp at once. The mutiny actually failed, largely through the power and persuasion of Michael Collins and Kevin O'Higgins. Their speeches had an immense effect upon my father, and he quoted them later in life to us children and anyone else who would listen in our kitchen in Callan. Collins missed an important meeting in London and came down from Dublin to address the rebellious police recruits. His speech to them, like the later speech of O'Higgins, was about police duty, the rule of law, and the fundamentals of democracy. The impact of both speeches upon my father marked his final passage from young gunman to unarmed police officer. He spoke of the way Collins made the distinction between him and his fellow recruits and members of the old RIC. But with you men, it will not be the same as it was before. You will start off with the goodwill of the people. In other words, they would be the first Irish policemen, unlike the RIC, who would enjoy the support of the people. You will be their guardians, not their oppressors. Your authority will be derived from the people, not from their enemies. As Minister of Justice, O'Higgins was on the Board of Inquiry, set up to investigate the Kildare mutiny, and my father gave evidence before it. He told O'Higgins that he found it difficult to accept even those RIC men who had shown allegiance to the nationalist cause. In his words to O'Higgins and the board, being under the command of ex-RIC men was very hard on ordinary men to understand. The O'Higgins speech, which my father remembered so vividly, came years later in 1927. The Civil War was over by then, but the new state still had immense difficulties, and at one point it found itself unable to pay its police force. My father was chosen as a delegate from County Kilkenny to attend a protest meeting in Dublin against the pay cuts. This meeting was addressed by O'Higgins still Minister of Justice. His words, once again, persuaded my father and the Garda rank and file to put allegiance to the state and the rule of law above personal considerations. These were the words of O'Higgins that rang out in my father's voice in our kitchen in Callan. You must realise that party will follow party in the ebb and flow of the political tide. 
You must serve with the same imperturbable discipline any executive that may from time to time be in power. The same imperturbable discipline. That's what he told us. Within a matter of months from his speech, Collins was assassinated. Within months of his speech, O'Higgins was shot dead on a Dublin street as he walked to church. But back to the Civil War and two final stories. As a young married couple without children, my mother and father arrived to his first posting in Callan in late October 1922. He was to describe Callan at the time as like a frontier town of the Wild West. For instance, within ten days of the arrival of the new policemen in the town, the police station was attacked by masked men and an attempt was made to burn it down. Perhaps, too, the frontier atmosphere was partly due to the fact that as sergeant he was issued with a long-barreled Webley revolver and 12 rounds of ammunition. This was technically for the shooting of dangerous animals, but there is little doubt that it also reflected the dangerous times. The gun and bullets were still in a bedroom drawer of our home during my childhood. I can still remember its cold, metallic heft and that I could hardly lift it. I can still see the squat bullets. Halfway up the narrow staircase, my mother had created a small shrine on a windowsill, a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, a bowl of holy water, with water from the grotto in Lourdes. You were expected to bless yourself as you passed up and down. That gun and those bullets were another shrine in the house, a dark, dangerous shrine to another creed. When no one was watching, a small boy made his way upstairs and into the bedroom. He slid open the drawer so that it didn't squeak. He lifted the heavy weapon in both hands, trembling with the confusion of feelings, some of them terrifying. He pointed the gun, as he had seen it done in many cowboy films in Bill Egan's cinema down on Green Street, going bang, bang. My mother eventually insisted that my father get rid of the gun, which he did. Callan was frontier territory in another sense. It was near the border of counties Kilkenny and Tipperary, and the lively competition over hurling matches later in my life was of a more lethal kind during the Civil War. The Callan area itself was a mixed allegiance with both pro- and anti-treaty families prominent in the community, but Tipperary was one of the principal centres of armed resistance to the treaty. Two incidents involving nearby Tipperary brought the civil war painfully into the lives of my parents. In November 1922, the first Garda shot dead in the history of the new state was a young man called Harry Phelan, 
He was from my father's barracks in Callan. Phelan and two other guards had asked for permission to go to the nearby Tipperary village of Mullinahone to buy a hurling ball. My father agreed, provided that they did not wear their Garda uniforms. The three were in a pub after their mission when three anti-treaty IRA men rushed in, one pointing a gun. My father always claimed that he had information that the gun was faulty and that it went off accidentally, killing Phelan. The killer, a local man called Cody, was smuggled out of the country and was killed shortly afterwards in a New York traffic accident. The other incident was even more typical of the period. The Civil War had by now reverted to guerrilla attacks by anti-treaty units of the IRA, the so-called Irregulars, on different representatives of the new state, including its police. The Irregulars were led by individuals who had become extremely skillful guerrilla fighters during their campaign against the British. While there was a command structure in place, in practice, the Irregulars operated as independent local units. Everything depended upon the ingenuity of the local commanders. And the two most famous of these in Tipperary were called Dan Breen and Dinny Lacey. A month after the killing of the policeman, Callan was taken by the combined units of Breen and Lacey. It was seen to be so serious a setback for the Irish government that it caused disquiet in London and reached the pages of the Times. And it led to a high noon type moment on the streets of Callan. Lacey and Breen entered the town from the Clonmel Road and the direction of Mullinahone, where the young policeman had been shot. The two guerrilla leaders were contrasting types. Lacey was thin, ascetic, cold, intellectual-looking, and had an extraordinary reputation as a ruthless killer. Breen was heavy, jocular, swarthy, with bushy black hair and a quick grin. Both of them wore officer uniforms of the IRA. The Free State troops occupied the old workhouse at the edge of the town. With the arrival of the Irregulars, the commanding officers immediately surrendered. Those who didn't change sides on the spot were disarmed and marched down the main street of the town and lined up at the cross. By now, the townspeople had crept out of their houses and formed an audience for this demonstration of power and humiliation. Then it was the turn of the Gardaí. They were taken from their barracks and also lined up on the street before the watching townspeople. My father was at home with his wife, reading the newspaper when armed men banged on the door. He was taken to the cross and lined up with his fellow police officers. Lacey addressed them, 
telling them that the anti-treaty forces had taken over much of the country and that the Irish Free State was finished. He said they could now join the Republican fight or face the consequences. Then he walked from policeman to policeman and asked the same question of each of them, name and rank. For some reason, the question was immediately understood and decoded by each man, who answered by giving his name and his rank in the IRA in the late War of Independence. Fortunately, each one had such a record. Lacey said simply, dismiss men. The policemen walked away free. If there had been any hesitation, if someone had been in the RIC, for instance, my father was convinced that they would have been shot on the spot by Lacey. He also told how Breen took him personally to one side and spent some time trying to persuade him to take off the police uniform and rejoin his old comrades in the fight for the Republic. He declined and talked about his oath of allegiance to serve the people in an unarmed, non-sectarian police force, echoing the speech of Collins and anticipating that of O'Higgins. I don't know where my mother was during all of this, but I can imagine her accosting the irregulars, pouring out her respectable record of republicanism to them and demanding the immediate release of her husband. I can also imagine her terror. Lacey was shot dead early the following year in his native Tipperary in an ambush by Free State troops. His death was one of the events that helped to bring the civil war to an end. Breen was captured alive, lived on, becoming a TD, and he wrote a well-known account of his war experiences called My Fight for Irish Freedom. It was said that he could never pass through a metal detector because of the bullets still in his body. Back on that day in Callan, Lacey was 32 years old, Breen 28, and my father was 29. My generation can just about reach back in memory to the young days of the foundation of this state. We carry with us images of our parents in incidents which could have put an end to their lives. We can just about evoke the possibility that existed, even if briefly, of the failure to establish a peaceful democratic state in Ireland. Like most wars, this was a war of confusion. Like most wars, it was a war of the young. Ireland's cause is not Ireland's cause only, it is the cause of the world. You will start off with the goodwill of the people. 
you will be their guardians, not their oppressors. I know one thing for sure and certain. The English shortchanged us. They sold us a pub. He went against his own comrades behind their backs. Such talk in front of the children. You must serve with the same imperturbable discipline any executive that may from time to time be in power. The same imperturbable discipline. That's what he told us. You've been listening to A Family of Memories by Thomas Kilroy, directed by Patrick Mason. The narrator was Thomas Kilroy. Kathy Belton played mother and Joe Taylor played father and other voices. Additional voices were by Angus McAnally, Fergus Carey, Richard Byrne and Cahill Murray. Music was by Dennis Clossy. Sound supervision and sound design were by Damien Chanel. The dramaturg was Jesper Bergman. A Family of Memories by Thomas Kilroy was directed by Patrick Mason. The producer for RTE was Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. And you can listen back online to A Family of Memories at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Thomas Kilroy's memoir, Over the Backyard Wall, a memory book, is published by Lilliput Press. Suvnas Shiri Ahamush rta.ie forward slash drama on one.